Welcome to Spark Church. I'm Pastor Danielle. I'm one of the pastors here at Spark and really grateful to be with you all and to continue our worship time through the study of God's Word. We're in a series on the person of Peter. We're going to be heading towards the letters of Peter, First and Second Peter, we call them, um, towards the end of our New Testament. Um, but in order to kind of be able to read those and read those well, we're doing a little bit of a biographical sketch of Peter and what he did in his life. So today, our sermon is entitled, Fish, Rooster, Sheep, Oh My. And if you have now lions, tigers, and bears, oh my, inside your, from your Wizard of Oz, you're fine with that. That's good. We can keep that going too. Peter is a fisherman, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago. We talked about how Peter is raised in an area and working in an area in the northern Galilee where it's good Torah-observant, kosher-keeping, Sabbath-keeping Jews, and they are fishing. And Jesus' first encounter with Peter is as he's fishing, and he turns to Peter and says, hey, you should come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men, of people. And they drop their nets, and they do that. And you can go back a couple weeks in our podcast and listen to what we talked about that week. But not long after that, after Jesus is performing miracles and teaching and walking around the Sea of Galilee and giving his disciples all of the lessons he wants to give them, Jesus starts to, towards the end of his earthly ministry, turning his face towards Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is very different than Galilee. Jerusalem is packed together. Still today, a city of tensions and contrasts and powers and um, you kind of have to get your elbows out to walk through the marketplace there today and 2,000 years ago. Crowded, diverse, and, and a place where the edges are sharp. Not a place where you can just kind of sit and hear the, the water lapping against the shore. And it's the same for us today, right? If I said, hey, we're going to go spend a, city, a day in the city, you guys will say, okay, I'm going to get walking shoes on. I'm going to wear my coin purse in a particular way. I'm not going to leave my wallet in the back. Like there's something about sort of getting ready for the bustle and the more condensed humanity and all that that brings. But if I said, we're going to go to the beach, like we're going to go to Pescadero and we're all going to go hang out. It's a little bit more relaxed, right? You're bringing something different. You're imagining different realities. And the same is true for the disciples as they start to set their face towards Jerusalem along with Jesus. When they get there in that time towards the end of his earthly ministry, he enters in during that festival week of Passover. The Romans are very concerned about these rowdy Judeans who want to be back in power. And all of these tensions are happening. And in the midst of that, there's a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. It's recorded in several of the gospels, but we're gonna look at the version here in the gospel of John chapter 13. Shimon Kepha, this is the Hebrew word for Peter, said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Yeshua, Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Lord, Kepha said to him, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Yeshua, Jesus answered, you will lay down your life for me? Yes, indeed. I tell you before the rooster crows, you will disown me, deny me three times. Now this is bad news, right? So it's, you're in discipleship school, you're hanging out with one of the best rabbis ever, he's been raising people from the dead, healing everything, and, and you're supposed to follow him and do everything for him, including even go to death. And your rabbi just turned to you and said, hey, you're gonna deny me 
three times before the rooster crows. That's in John 13. Now, by the time we get five chapters later, in John 18, Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is the night of Passover. He's had his Passover meal with his disciples, gone to the garden on the Mount of Olives, and he's been arrested there. After he's arrested, he's taken into the priest's and Herod and Pilate, and he's going to go and have these conversations into their various locations in Jerusalem. And the disciples are following. You can imagine the fear that they must have felt. As Jesus was arrested, Simon Peter gets so afraid that he actually pulls out his sword and cuts off the ear of a servant of the high priest, and Jesus heals it. So there's fear and tension, and they've taken Jesus captive. Shimon Kepha and another Talmud, another disciple, follow Yeshua. So they're following in the middle of the night, trying to see what's going to happen to their rabbi. And the second Talmud was known to the Kohen Hagadol. That means the high priest. Kohen is priest and Hagadol is the big, the big priest. The Kohen Hagadol. And he went with Yeshua into the courtyard of the Kohen Hagadol. And Kepha stood outside by the gate. So the other Talmud, the one known to the Kohen Hagadol, went back out and spoke to the woman on duty at the gate and then brought Kepha inside. The woman at the gate said to Kepha, aren't you another of that man's Talmudim disciples? He said, no, I'm not. Now the slaves and guards had lit a fire because it was cold and they were standing around it warming themselves and Kepha joined them and stood warming himself too. And they said to him, aren't you also one of his Talmudim, his disciples? He denied it saying, no, I'm not. And one of the slaves of the Kohen Hagadol, relative of the man whose ear Kepha had cut off, said, didn't I see you with him in the grove of trees? So again, Kepha denied it and instantly a rooster crowed. Not something roosters are known to do in the dead of night. This becomes such a pivotal narrative and event, not just in the life of Peter, but in the life of church that people will reference roosters crowing or the denial of Christ. And in fact, they've even built a church that remembers it um, just outside of the city walls where people early 14, 497 uh, CE pilgrims started remembering this as the place. And then Byzantine period, they built a church there and then it was torn down. And then the crusaders built it back up. Um, the Church of St. Peter in Galicantu. Galicantu in Latin means of the rooster's crow. So there's a whole beautiful church and the street signs, like as you're going through the old city, are like, hey, you want to see the place where the rooster crowed? This way. This becomes a monument to this event, right? And you can go there today, whether that's the place or not, it remembers it. And all of this narrative becomes central and core to who we think of as Peter. Peter's the guy that denied Jesus. Jesus said he was going to do it, warned Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Say, just so you should look out, you know, it's going to happen to you. And Peter does anyway. I have a lot of sympathy for Peter's experience, by the way. I feel like if somebody, any one of you, I might love you very much, but if I just seen you taken away in the dead of night. And I was actually trying to be sneaky and try to figure out what's going to happen. And maybe I could figure out how to way to help. And somebody was like, Hey, do you know Kevin? I'd be like, no, I don't know. I've never heard him before in my life. <laughs> Only married 25 years, right? Like, I just feel like that might be the smart move at that point, right? Like if somebody's like, Hey, aren't you BFFs with the guy we just arrested? I'd be like, if you say yes, what are you going to do? Like, you're like right there with him, right? I don't know. Has anybody else felt sympathy for Peter in this moment? Cause I, right. I'd be like, Dude's smart. Don't say 
just bad. I don't know you. I mean, the, the problem, of course, is that Jesus is like, you're going to do that. He's like, no, I would never. And then he's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I don't know that guy. Then they're like, uh-uh, crud, right? Like, he's like, probably doesn't even recognize that it's happening because he's just trying to navigate an empire that has just arrested his rabbi. So that empire wins the day, it seems, right? Jesus is beaten and tortured and humiliated and crucified on the cross. And they, they watch all of this happen. Peter watches this happen. And then they see him die. They see an earth, they hear an earthquake, observe it all happening. They see the sky turn dark. All these crazy things have occurred. They lay his body in the tomb. And three days later, the women come back Miriam, Mary, the other, they come, they're like, we have just seen the Lord. He's risen, the tomb is empty, the angels told us he's not there. And when Mary's there, according to the Gospel of John, she's sitting there weeping, and Jesus says, hey, why are you crying? And she, it says she doesn't recognize him. She, doesn't, she can't figure out that it's him. And she says, please, where have you placed him? Where have you laid him? And she, he says, Mary, and her response, my rabbi, recognizes him, run, they go and they tell Peter and the other disciples, and they come and they're confused, right? They see the empty tomb, they have an, ex an angelic experience, and according to some accounts, and only because of the women, by the way, and women who preach, um, do they know that any of this has happened, and they go and they have this experience, but it's still confusing and frightening. And depending upon which gospel you're reading, it's sort of a mess, right? They don't actually know. It's not like they're like, and now we will explain all theology going forward. Now on the road to Emmaus, Jesus can do that. But the disciples are still trying to figure it out. According to the end of the Gospel of Mark, it says um, that he said, don't be surprised. This is the angel. You're looking, you're looking for Yeshua from Nazareth and he was executed on the stake. He has risen. He's not here. Look at the place where they laid him, but go and tell his Talmudim, especially Kepha, especially Peter, that he's going to the Galil ahead of you. You will see him there just as he told you. Trembling by a stack, they went out and fled from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I've always wondered about that one line. Go and tell his Talmudim, especially Kepha, or even Kepha. Why single out Peter? I wonder if at this point Peter's just not said, like, I denied that guy three times. I don't know if I am qualified to be one of his disciples anymore, right? Any other disciple, Talmudim, that would, like, go out and deny that they even knew the rabbi, I mean, that... That's like ultimate, like you flunked out of discipleship school. Not just that you got an F in one course. You've flunked out. You've denied any knowledge of your rabbi. According then to the Gospel of John, in the midst of all this confusion, Jesus shows up in that upper room, wherever the disciples are gathered as they're hiding. And Yeshua comes and stands in the middle of them and says, Shalom Aleichem, which means peace be upon you. And having greeted them, he showed them his hands and his side. And the Talmudim were overjoyed to see the Lord. Shalom Aleichem, Yeshua repeated. Just as the Father sent me, I myself am also sending you. Having said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Wind. And if you forgive someone's sins, their sins are forgiven. And if you hold them, they are held. This is a really interesting encounter because Jesus shows up in the middle and Peter's there. He's hanging out there. And yet 
I'm going to suggest that for Peter, for Kepha at this point, God's mercy is too great to be believed. I don't think he really understands what Jesus is saying in this moment. That Jesus is sending them. That Jesus has breathed the Holy Spirit upon them and given them the power and the authority to forgive sins. But God's mercy is too great to be believed sometimes, especially when it comes to forgiving ourselves. So where do we find Peter? He's not staying in Jerusalem. He's not hanging out. He's not running around proclaiming all the truth yet. We find him back at the Sea of Galilee fishing. After this, Yeshua appeared again to the Talmudim at Lake Tiberias. Tiberia, it's like Sea of Galilee. Here's how it happened. Shimon Kepha and Toma, his name means twin, were together with Nathanael from Cana in the, Gal- in the Galil and sons of Zavdi and two other Talmudim. Shimon Kepha said, I'm going fishing. Like, I'm done. I'm, not doing- I'm done with this Rabbi Talmudim stuff. I'm back to fishing. And they said to him, we're coming with you. So they went and got into the boat, but that night they didn't catch anything. It's likely that they're right here along this shore of the Sea of Galilee, right in this area, because of the type of fishing that they're doing that's done at night. Because the next verse tells us that just as day was breaking, Yeshua stood on the shore, but the Talmudim did not know it was he. And he said to them, children, did you like that Jesus calls the disciples, little kids, like, they're out there fishing, they're grown people, right? Particularly Peter. Children, don't you have any, you you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered him. And he said to them, throw in your net to the right side and you'll catch some. So they threw in their net and there were so many fish in it that they couldn't haul it aboard. And the Talmud Yeshua loved, said to Kepha, it's the Lord. That would be John, Yochanan. On hearing it was the Lord, Shimon Kepha threw on his coat because he was stripped for work and plunged into the lake. This also tells you about the type of fishing he's doing. He's probably in the water, been slapping on top of the water in order to get the fish to run into the nets when the light is shining in the middle of the night. He puts on his cloak, plunges into the lake, and the other Talmudim follow the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they weren't far from shore, only about 100 yards. This is exactly the area where that happens. This type of fishing happens exactly in this area because of a warm spring that comes right on out, flooding into the Sea of Galilee. And it's this type of fishing that's still done today. So we know about where they're at. And it's very close to all the things Jesus had already done in the lives of these disciples. It's very close to the feeding of the 5,000. It's very close to the other miraculous catches of fishes. And it's right between Bethsaida and Capernaum, where Jesus had done many miracles and teaching. Where Peter's from. When they stepped ashore, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Yeshua said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. And Shimon Kepha went up and dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153 of them, but even with so many, the net wasn't torn. Lots of ink's been spilt over this detail, and it's sort of interesting and fascinating. You can search for it all yourself, but there's some theories that 153 has to do with math and Pythagoras theorem. And other people were talking about 153, that there was a teaching at that time that there were 153 varieties of fish in the world. And so this is a symbol that God will be casting a net that will catch people from all nations. And the fact that the net doesn't 
tear, that there's no schism in it, means that we can come and be as one as part of John's uh, remembrance of, Peter, of Jesus's prayer in the garden that we would be unified. You can all go and debate. Marcus Bauckham's written chapters on it as well. It's lots of fun. Um, Kevin's written some on it too, so you can come and have those conversations. But I think what we want to remember is that they took time to count fish. <laughs> just I just think that's kind of funny. Like, and one, and two, and three. Um, that, there, that John, the gospel writer, wants us to remember it's 153 and that the net didn't tear. Yeshua said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the Talmudim dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Yeshua came and took the bread and gave it to them and he did the same with the fish. You have to wonder if they're not thinking deja vu at this point. And this was how, the, how, now the third time Yeshua had appeared to the Talmudim after being raised from the dead. They had this amazing, wonderful, nice breakfast right by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. The Gospel of John continues. After breakfast, Yeshua said to Shimon Kepha, Shimon bar Yochanan, do you love me more than these? More than the fish? Maybe, I don't know. And he replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, graze my lambs. A second time he said to him, Shimon bar Yochanan, do you love me? He replied, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Shimon bar Yochanan, do you love me? Shimon was hurt that he questioned him a third time. Do you love me? So he replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Yeshua said to him, graze my sheep. And this comes the second time in Peter's life with Jesus where he will get a call right alongside the Sea of Galilee. The first time was come and fish with me for people. But now it's come and be a shepherd. Come and be a shepherd, Peter. Three times Jesus asked this question, do you love me? And a lot of ink's been spilt over, well, the first two times he says, do you phileo me? And I phileo you, I phileo you, meaning like, do you friend love me like Philadelphia? And then the third time it's agape, do you agape me like deep, bold, God, faithful, covenantal love? Um, maybe, maybe there's something to read in all of that. Maybe the gospel writer is just mixing it up. Here's a word for love, here's another word for love. But why ask three times? think anybody doing good math would go, oh, there were three denials, and now there's three do you love me's. Then come shepherd my flock, graze my sheep, shepherd my flock, graze my sheep. The symbol of shepherd in the Bible is powerful. It's ancient. It reaches back from Genesis and then pulls all the way through our entire narrative. They live in a land not just of fishing, but a land of shepherding too. Not necessarily right by the Sea of Galilee. That's where you can grow the good stuff. Those sheep couldn't come down here. But in the hills, in the hill country, shepherds who would be with their flocks, who would guard their flocks, who would lay down at the entrance of the, sheep, of the sheepfold at night, guarding and making sure that nobody could come on in. When Jesus says, take care of sheep, be a shepherd, he's saying, be like Abraham, be like Isaac, be like Jacob, be like Rachel, be like Moses and Zipporah, be like David, be like those leaders that have been of old, the, the heroes we speak of, the ones who've shaped all that we believe in, all the narratives, be like that. 
And we have this beautiful resonance too in Ezekiel 34, and there's no time to go into it tonight, but go and read. Be a shepherd like God is a shepherd. And of course, Jesus in the Gospel of John says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he isn't a shepherd and the sheep aren't his own, sees the wolf coming and abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf drags them off and scatters them. The hired worker behaves like this because that's all he is, a hired worker. So it doesn't matter to him what happens to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life on behalf of the sheep. Also, I have other sheep which are not from this pen. And I need to bring them and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock, one shepherd. When Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Then graze my flock, graze my sheep, shepherd my people. He's saying, be like me. Why are you fishing? I breathed on you. I sent you out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I sent you as the Father has sent me. And I am telling you to be a shepherd in the same way that I am a good shepherd. In the same same way that God has been our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Be like me, Peter. And guess what? It seems like, according to the Gospel of John, this is a great big do-over. Because just like we had this experience by a fire in Jerusalem, where Peter denied that same word for fire, which is anthrax, basically, (laughs) in the Greek, anthrakia, a charcoal fire only occurs two times in our text. It occurs once to describe the fire in Jerusalem as Peter denies Jesus, and it occurs the next time as Jesus makes a fire right by the Sea of Galilee. Do you wish, Peter, that your answer had been different when they asked if you knew me? Do over. Jesus gives do-overs. Notice that Jesus doesn't ask if Peter knows that Jesus loves him. He doesn't say, do you know I love you? Because that's actually not in question. Peter might be questioning it. And he's maybe heartbroken by the exchange. that says he's really upset because Jesus has asked him three times, do you love me? But he's not asked Peter, do you know that I love you? That shouldn't be in question at all. Of course, Jesus loves Peter. But don't you think Peter's wondering? I mean, if I betrayed you three times, I think I might consider the fact that you might not have very warm, fuzzy feelings towards me anymore. But Jesus shows up and asks a different question altogether. Do you love me? Then go be like me. Do you love me? Go be like me. Be a shepherd. Go take care of the flock. Go take care of the people. You're not too far beyond grace. I think it's amazing that Peter, for the rest of his life, is going to walk through life, walk through his own pastoring, leading, shepherding, with the knowledge that you cannot fall too far, that God won't extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to you. And maybe he becomes that type of compassionate leader himself, because he knows what it is to fail and to fall flat, and to then to be restored. But what if others in your life will never let you forget your failures? What if others in your life like to remind you constantly of the ways in which you have betrayed or missed the mark? 
Does anybody have those people in your life? I think I, I was wondering at what point my parents, is it age 50, we'll find out, will stop reminding me of the terrible things I did in high school. Like, remember that time, Danielle, when you did, I'm like, I, can I say 17? Can I claim adolescent brain? Can I own anything? Like, have you seen me since then trying to live a very different life than that dumb mistake in high school, right? But we find ourselves often stuck in our own narratives and in the narratives of others, but not with Jesus. But what if, I don't know, they make a monument of your worst moment? What if they build a church that's like, let's tell everyone what you did and the worst thing you've ever done. Hey, I know, we won't talk about, we're not gonna do, hey, Peter, you went, you lived for Jesus and you shepherded everybody, and you did all this great stuff. Remember that great sermon you gave in Acts 2? That's fantastic. No, how about we just build a whole church that remembers about how you denied Jesus three times and then a rooster crowed at a very inawkward, like, let's just do that. Rough, right? Can you imagine living in a town where everybody, I mean, I don't know if Peter's like, you know, in heaven looking down. I'm not saying I believe in any of that theology, but for a moment, let's say if he's just going, can I just say it was a confusing time. I was really scared. I was trying to figure out if I could help. So I was like, yeah, no, I don't know that guy because I'm trying to go help. Or maybe I was just so scared that I was going to get crucified. And so fair enough. Like, I don't know him, never seen him before in my life. But instead, no, let's build a church. We're going to remember all of it. But you know what's super amazing? This is not a reminder of Peter's failure at all. This is a reminder of Jesus' grace. This is a reminder of the fact that it doesn't matter if you've denied Jesus three times. It doesn't matter if you're totally humiliated by that big failure, if you just fell flat. You know, if you were seven years old in a tap dancing class and you, you told your tap teacher like three times that you really needed to use the bathroom and she said no and you should have thought about that beforehand and then you shuffle ball changed and peed and then everybody had to just keep leaping over your pee the entire rest of the class. Jesus... As you think to yourself, I told you I had to go, um, Jesus will not build a church to that moment in your life, right? And instead, you can still go on to the recital. I don't know, it's just I've, stories I've heard. So <laughs> what I'm saying is that your moments, the most deep failure moments, those pages in your scrapbook where, that you wish you could rip out, you wish you could just be like, and then... Three years later, something really great happened, and that relationship didn't derail me at all, or, or that deep painful wound didn't happen, or, or this massively embarrassing failure at work didn't occur. What if instead we look at those moments of our life not as like failures to define us, but as memorials to God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and God's do-overs? And we could just go, oh yeah, did you see me? My cheese was falling off my cracker. I had nothing going for me at all. It was a mess and Jesus. Peter ends up really embracing his identity as shepherd over God's people. He doesn't go on to continue to be a fisherman after this moment with Jesus by the lake. He actually uses shepherding language for when he writes his letters. So spoiler alert, 1 Peter 5. Peter uses not fisherman language, not denial like, oh, by the way, when the rooster crows language. Instead, he's all the way fully embracing his identity as a shepherd. 
Therefore, I urge the congregational leaders among you as a fellow leader and witness to the Messiah's sufferings, as well as a sharer in the glory to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is in your care, exercising oversight, not out of constraint, but willingly as God wants, and not out of a desire for dishonest gain, but with enthusiasm, and also not domineering over those in your care, but as people who become examples to the flock. And then when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive glory as your unfading crown. Peter ends up leading with love and compassion and forgiveness. He lives the rest of his life. Peter lives the rest of his life as somebody who's been deeply forgiven and then been called to do something new and wonderful. Empowered to do so. To really step into his full identity as one of those shepherds just like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, Moses, Zipporah, David, and Jesus. And even following in the footsteps an example that God has given. The Lord is my shepherd. That chief shepherd. Peter gets to embrace that as his identity. This is who I want to be. I'm not going to run around anymore being defined as the one that denied. Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to do something brand new. By the time we get to the end of the Gospels, and as we then follow Peter through the book of Acts, as we'll see in our coming weeks, and then follow Peter's ministry into Asia Minor, we'll see that Peter's no longer fishing, and he's no longer hiding, and he's no longer defined by a rooster's crow. But Peter is now leading and shepherding in love. What kind of leader wouldn't that be? Isn't it so great that his story is a hot mess? Because that will just make him such a better leader. One who understands the failings and the sufferings and the challenges that we are all going through. One that could sit down and say, oh, you will never believe the time. Three times, and I was warned. I was told this would happen. I could have avoided it. Three times I'll deny that I know my rabbi. I mean, just immediate disqualification from all Talmudim discipleship calling. So my question for us this afternoon is, do we believe we are forgiven? Are we willing to forgive ourselves? The thing that we're most upset that we ever did or the deepest pain that we've ever caused, will we forgive ourselves? Can we follow in Peter's footsteps and move into a new identity? Can we believe that we are sent and that we're called and that we're loved? That we're greater than our worst act? Jesus says yes. Jesus says we are greater than all of those things. And those things aren't failures to be ignored, but they can be monuments of God's grace. The ways in which God has decided to write a new story for each one of us. Ultimately, Jesus invites us to be like him. And that's the call. Perfection is not required. Failure guaranteed. Jesus steps into our lives, into yours and mine, and says, it's okay. It's okay. That's not the end of the story. Even if people make a big church, just to remember your worst moment, it's not the end of the story, and it doesn't define you. That's who Jesus is.
He gives us more than just this one moment. Jesus calls us to be like him. And each one of us, we're still called into that today. We are called to step into the firm reality that we are loved and we are accepted and we are forgiven and we can extend that forgiveness to others. They're forgiven too, right? It's not just me. And that we can all be greater than that worst moment. We can be called to be like Jesus. If you'll remember, when Jesus sat at the table with his disciples, he sat with people who would deny him. He sat with people who would betray him. He sat with people who scattered, who doubted, who questioned. And at that table, he welcomed all. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Come all who are thirsty. Come all who are hungry. The table has been set and all are welcome at this table. Jesus meets us here, calls us here, and then sends us back out, breathing on us fresh and making us new again, sending us out to be the caretakers of God's people of God's flock. The table is prepared for you.